Airlines Confidential with Ben Baldanza and Seth Kaplan is made possible with the support of Hotel Connections, the global leader in crew logistics and accommodations. Hotelconnections.com. Clear, a leader in touchless travel. Learn more at clearme.com slash airlines. Seabury Capital Group, global reach, global scale. SeaburyCapital.com. We also welcome your business's support. Info at AirlinesConfidential.com. I just read a story that said isolation because of COVID-19 was actually good for people with red hair. I wonder what my co-host thinks about that. He's NPR's here and now transportation analyst, Seth Kaplan. Are you serious, Ben? I did read that article, Seth. Well, I read an article that says isolation is good for people who used to run ultra low cost carriers because that way the public can't get to them and tell them what they really think of them. <laughs> He's former CEO of Spirit Airlines, Ben Baldanza, who now teaches about how airlines work. And that's not true, by the way. It's completely fictional. But, but that's a story but, you should But it could write, be. It would yeah. Be true. <laughs> it, 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 it would be. Yeah. I didn't read the article. Doesn't mean it's not true. Pushing back from the gate, this is Airlines Confidential, the show where we share the secrets of the airline industry and debate all the crazy things that happen in the airline world each week. And by the way, Ben, you have to be curious. We got to come back and talk about that later here, here why isolation is good for me, aside from the fact that I don't like people. Uh, today, an airline says it's burning through. $35 million of cash each day, and investors just kind of shrug their shoulders. Plus, when will we have a good idea of which long-haul routes will return next summer? First, though, let's prepare for takeoff with this week's news. United Airlines began the week with a bleak financial update. It had hoped the fourth quarter would be better than the third. Instead, it's burning something like $25 million a day in cash from its operations, or more like $35 million if you count interest costs, severance, and that sort of thing. So back almost to as bad as things were in the second quarter, which was awful. Of course, this isn't just a story about United. This is going on everywhere. Ben, interestingly, the stock market mostly shrugged off this rather bad news. United's shares dropped a little more than the broader market, but really only a little. So it seems investors were already kind of assuming what United basically confirmed for them. That's probably right. Airlines have done a good job generating a lot of cash by doing interesting things like borrowing money against their frequent flyer program and airplanes they may have owned, selling them back to a, a lessor to get the cash for the, you know, for the airplane, but then they just lease it back. So they basically pay it back by month. <laughs> that that piece and uh, all kinds of things. And so there's these big numbers in the billions that airlines have raised in cash and United it's, you know, I don't know if it's five, six, seven, eight, nine billion. It's a huge number. Delta was 9 billion just for their frequent fire program. So you talk a, you know, piddly 25, 35 million. What's that? Right. And so it's a huge number, but it's in a world of even, huger sort of cash that these airlines have put in place because they know they're going to lose cash for a while and still pe until people start traveling again and they can start getting their planes back in the air. So while United said that, and it really is a kind of a shockingly terrible number, it does, doesn't really move people anymore because they kind of get that's what the industry is right now. 
Meanwhile, now we have shots of the COVID vaccine going into arms. Uh, Great news, of course. In America, I was struck Monday by the juxtaposition of, on one hand, the country recording its 300,000th COVID-19 death. Such somber news. No way to paint that any other way. But on the other hand, the first healthcare workers vaccinated on the same day. Ben, I wonder if in the short term, this could actually hurt travel demand because, okay, you have this COVID surge, health authorities warning against travel, and people also knowing, hey, this isn't going to go on forever, however many more months, and then I can travel again and do it safely. And Ben, I'm talking, of course, not mainly about airports and airplanes, but just about being around other people including at your destination. What do you think about that, that in the short term, maybe the news of the vaccine actually causes people to wait more faithfully to travel because there's an end in sight? I think that's possible, actually. I can certainly see people, you know, using that kind of logic. Hey, you know, I'm not I'm not going to wait all that much longer, so why not just wait? I mean, you wait for things to go on sale before you buy them, right? (laughs) And it's the the same kind of idea, sort of I'm willing to put off gratification if I can think something's going to be better later on. And if travel is that, the the big if I would say about that, Seth, is what's going to happen at the end of December holidays, whether it's Christmas, Hanukkah, Kwanzaa, or Festivus or however however you celebrate it, right? I mean, that's a long period of time. It's usually, you know, almost a couple of weeks if you think Christmas week and New Year's week. It's unlike Thanksgiving where everything's packed into, you know, four or five days. It's really sort of two weeks where some people are out of work some of the time and go back to work other time. Even the kids in school remotely are probably off for, you know, a good two weeks in that time. And so are people going to say, I'm willing to not travel then when more people than those thought would travel at Thanksgiving actually did travel at Thanksgiving? We saw some of our higher TSA numbers since COVID at Thanksgiving. And would that be even more Christmas? That's the one thing that makes me wonder whether that short term would be affected. But I think your basic premise might be right. I mean, if you can, if it can all be safe in just a few months, which I'm not sure that's true, but if that's what people think, why not wait? Yeah, somebody wrote an article in Forbes this past week predicting that the summer might still be rough for airlines. Who was that? Oh, wait, never mind. It's nobody. It's nobody credible. It's here it is. I'm looking at the byline here. Ben Baldanza. Never mind. I was thinking it was something if you want to look it up, it's five bold predictions for the U.S. airline industry in 2021 is the uh, is the head. If you probably Google like Baldanza five airline predictions or something. It'll it'll come up. But uh, yeah, and that, and that is the big question, right, is is how long I know uh, health authorities are saying, you know, maybe spring, summer, something like that before most of us are, are able to get vaccinated. Those of us who aren't, you know, healthcare workers, frontline workers who have a, a specific vulnerability or are, or are uh, old enough, that sort of thing. And, and so that's really the big question here. The vaccine itself seems to have been kind of an upside surprise, right? It, it, it happened and lo and behold, it seems to be more effective than anybody hoped, right? We were just hoping something like the flu shot where it would keep some people safe. Instead, they're talking about 95%. So, hey, I guess there's a chance that all of a sudden it's April and more people than we expected are vaccinated. But it sounds like the uh, uh, 
the over-under is somewhere more like the middle uh, of next year. So we'll have to watch that. Well, uh, time now for our first listener question. We have a big accumulation of mail to get through. Andrew of Morristown, New Jersey writes, love the pod. Two topics I think would be uh, leads a great conversation. Number one, can we talk about how U.S. and non-U.S. airlines finance their aircraft? I know there's, uh, I imagine he says rather there's no specific, no one specific method here. What's the most common way? He says, is it mostly bank loans directly to airlines? And number two, the economic lifespan of aircraft. For example, Singapore Airlines recently retired A380s. I imagine some of these aircraft, not limited to A380s, can easily fly for more years. Aside from COVID and more fuel-efficient aircraft, do airlines retire their aircraft because the economic lifespan has come to an end. In other words, not because they they can't fly anymore, or not or or not even because they. This is me speaking now, Ben. Not even because the you know they're they're just way too expensive to maintain, but but just sort of for financial reasons. There's nothing more to depreciate that kind of thing. Uh, Andrew again says, uh, really appreciate your consideration of these topics. Keep killing it. Uh, obviously, huge. Uh, you know, again, another one of those questions. We snuck two questions in there where you could talk for a really long time. But number one, if you had to name uh, just just quickly, top method uh, of financing for U.S. and and non-U.S. airline, and of course, leasing is how is how a lot of airlines do it. It's like forty percent of airplanes or something in the world are leased. But uh, he's saying finance. What would you say? Well, I would say finance. I would say the the biggest ways that are most common are the sale lease back. So the airline has the order for the airplane. So it's their order book with Boeing or Airbus or Embraer or whoever, right? So they're going to take delivery of the airplane and say they're going to pay, you know, you know, $50 million for it to use big round numbers. And I have five fingers, right? So, <laughs> <laughs> so 50 million bucks, right? And so they could find a way to come up with $50 million, borrowing it from a bank like, um, like Andrew says, that that's possible. Um, but with a sale lease back, you get a lessor to buy the plane from you on the day you take delivery of it. And they pay you, they pay Airbus for the airplane or Boeing or whoever. They pay the $50 million and you immediately at the same time, this all goes on the same time, you agree for a relatively long-term lease of that airplane. So essentially you're going to agree to pay that lessor every month for a certain period of years against the fact that they front all the money for you up front. And that, while that looks like a leased airplane when it's on your books, it's not like going out in the market and saying, I want to lease an airplane because it was your airplane to buy. And the way you financed it was to sell it to a leasing company and have them lease it back to you. Yeah, you configured the plane. You, I mean, it, it was always going to be yours, but... An- another is what's called EETCs or Enhanced Equipment Trust Certificates. You basically and sell it, little pieces of the aircraft off. That's to, right. And an EETC is really like a bond transaction. They sell bonds to people against all these assets. And airlines don't necessarily use it for one airplane, but they might say, I'm going to do a $500 million EETC transaction and I'm going to use that money for fleet things I'm going to do over the next year, which could be leasing airplanes, buying airplanes, things like that. But it has kind of bond economics with it and people can buy, you know, individuals and banks mostly and funds can buy a piece into that knowing that it's backed by the asset of a 737 
or a triple seven or an A320 or an A330 or something like that. I would say those plus just a regular old loan are probably all the best ways, most common ways, I should say, that airlines finance airplanes. And quickly, any some pay split. cash, by the way. Southwest yeah. has paid cash for a lot of airplanes. Yeah, and, and quickly, U.S. and non-U.S. Is there a big difference, or would you say it's it's? Uh, uh, and I'm sure there's a nuanced difference in different parts of the world. I mean, you have you have uh, airlines in the world that can't pay traditional interest because you take Islamic financing and that sort of thing. But just generally speaking, if you're just saying U.S. versus Europe versus Asia versus Australasia versus Latin America, do you think there's a big difference or is the breakdown in very round terms similar? It's similar, but the one difference that European airlines have, and I'm not sure if this is true in Asia, I think this might be only Europe, but I'm sure a listener will correct me on that if I'm wrong, is they have what are called the ECA financing, which stands for Export Credit Agency. And what an export credit agency is, is essentially a sort of quasi-government institution that acts as an intermediary between governments and exporters. And like Lufthansa can get ECA financing for their airplane, but in the U.S. you can't get the ECA financing. And so it's not that's the type of financing that is popular in Europe, but not available in the U.S. And But sale leasebacks, EDCs would also be popular in Europe too, as well as just, you know, mortgages for the like a bank loan too. Japanese operating leases, on the other hand, are available outside Japan. Ben, the second part of his question quickly, retiring aircraft just because the economic lifespan of the aircraft has come to an end, do airlines do that just because there's nothing else to depreciate, for example? You know, that that's, that's kind of rare, I think. Planes can just fly for a long, long time. Not that long ago, but fairly long ago, airplanes would get retired because the technology was just so much better in the newer airplanes. The fuel burn, everything else was just so much better. That stopped happening, you know, in the last 10, 20 years or so, really. And now airplanes can just keep going and either they become too fuel inefficient or the new airplane is just more efficient or the maintenance costs get so high uh, because the plane can't be flown very often. And so the amount of hours you can fly the plane every day called the aircraft utilization drops. So those are the things that tend to make airlines retire airplanes. Now, in a case like COVID here, when everybody is shrinking their fleet and they're deciding which planes they're going to keep for the long, long haul and which they're not, there are certainly some fleets of planes that are being retired prematurely based on the pure economics, but just because they know that the airline's not going to be as big anymore. I think that's why a lot of the 380s are getting set, why Delta grounded all of its 777s. It's not like every one of those were planes that couldn't fly for another five, 10 years. They could with the right maintenance and things, but they're saying, we're just going to get out of that fleet and save the money from all of that maintenance and and all of that, and we'll rely on our newer equipment. That makes sense. Time next for another listener question. But first, we want to thank Hotel Connections, the global leader in crew logistics and accommodations. Hotel Connections is a Fortune 1000 company that makes travel management easier and less expensive with their AI-powered booking applications, intelligent learning algorithms, customizable rules engines, analytics, and global negotiated rate programs. For travel, logistics, hotels, transport, and technology solutions, 
visit hotelconnections.com. That's hotelconnections.com. Cousin Alex of Washington, D.C. writes, In November 2019, Iberia announced plans to launch Dulles Madrid beginning in May of 2020. Those plans were obviously scuttled by the pandemic. As the route was never actually established, is it one that we can still expect to relaunch? If so, and how would we know? I've glanced through IAG's public disclosures. Cousin Alex, by the way, that's not my cousin Ben who flies, who's a pilot. This is this is uh, this is another first cousin who he just travels and he's 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 reading through IAG's public disclosures. Uh, so okay. this, is, this is yeah, but haven't found any mention of the route since the. Uh, 2019 annual report uh, published just before the shutdown of transatlantic travel. And Dulles doesn't currently list Iberia on its returning airlines page. As someone who's holding quite a few Iberia avios due to canceled flights on this route, I'd love to know <laughs> if and when I might be able to rebook for 2021. Ben, I'm going to take a stab at this first. Tell me if you agree. I mean, just broadly speaking, I think we can say that whatever route let's put it this way, last in, first out, right? Whatever route was new was probably the most marginal route that an airline was about to begin flying during rather good times. And that's not the most core to its operation and is one that we're probably not likely to see in 2021 with a far smaller industry. And then we could talk about sort of when an airline would have to announce a route to hope to fill a plane over the summer. But am I right about that or or am I overthinking it? No, you're absolutely right about that. I mean, Iberia would have been flying that route for years before COVID if it had been a real, you know, popular Come, you know, high volume thing for them to do. They added it late because it was maybe the next highest apple on the tree. And so it went away quickly. I agree with you that I wouldn't be surprised if eventually we see Iberia do that route again, but I wouldn't hold my breath for seeing it in 2021. That's for sure. Yeah, if you think of all those sort of secondary routes out of Philadelphia for American, a, a lot of that stuff, that's the kind of stuff that works for a few months in the summer when times are really good maybe but uh but yeah and, and that's the kind of route Seth that I think if it if it's flown again might be flown with like an A321 long range plane like a long range narrow body instead of a wide body yeah and it's interesting cuz you think you know Washington Madrid you'd think that the uh you know certain amount of demand obviously but you know you've you've got united out there a lot of other airlines with a lot of capacity at least on a connecting basis uh, but between those markets uh so and then just in terms of when you could look at a schedule and say okay if a flight's not in there it's probably not going to be there long-haul flights tends to be a longer booking curve right i mean nobody's going to announce something in may or something for for next summer right we could probably guess that if it's not in there march ish it's not going to fly next summer. Am I right about that? I think that's right. Yep. Well, what logic is there to how flight numbers are assigned? Or is there any logic? Talk about that when Airlines Confidential returns. Travel with confidence with Clear. Touchless, fast, safer airport travel. Clear's touchless identity verification is available in 34 airports nationwide, moving you quickly and without crowds through airport security. Enroll today at www.clearme.com slash airlines. That's www.clearme.com 
com slash airlines. The Airlines Confidential Podcast is now available on Apple, Google, iHeart, Stitcher, SoundCloud, Pandora, Spotify, TuneIn, and many more. Use your favorite podcasting app with just one click at airlinesconfidential.com. With Ben Baldanza, I'm Seth Kaplan. This is Airlines Confidential. So quickly, Ben, I want to ask you, why is COVID-19 isolation good for redheads? I mean, redheads in general, not redheads like me. Or Well, I'm not saying this is true. I'm saying I read this article that said this was true. So you're probably better equipped to say whether this is true or not. But this article basically said that you're not forced to expose yourself to the sun just to be social now. And the second thing is wearing masks lets you easily cover up what is likely a sunburnt face and nobody's going to think that you're weird for wearing the mask. So that I don't know sense. whether, do you think either of those, th- of those ideas hold water or is this yeah, just a, I, I, a crazy I've, article you think? No, I've, I've had that thought about the face because I'm of course have to cover up with sunblock and all that. And I've had that thought that the mask is like, okay, that's, that's just a, a, a lot of exposed skin that I don't have to think about. So that's, uh, that's, yeah, I, I buy it. Well, back to the mailbag now. Cousin Ross writes, Cousin Ross is the cousin who is an airline pilot. Regional flight numbers and many mainline flight numbers, Ross writes, are four digits, but some are three or even two early on. I assumed it had something to do with how heavy the aircraft was since it seemed the wide body planes had fewer digits in the flight number. Uh, But that theory was dispelled since I've heard medium range planes with three digits on the radio before what determines how many digits are in a flight number i'm going to take a stab at this one too ben Please. i think it's just how <laughs> uh, i think it's just how long the flight's been around now well well two things in terms of the two versus three i think it's just like the really old legacy flights at an airline tend to have two or in some cases one did right you'll have like you'll have like a flight one is i think dallas to houston or is it the other way i think dallas to houston on southwest because the first flight they ever flew and it's still and it's you know 50 years later it's, it's still flight one i think that's the case in terms of why two versus three and then four tend to be the regional flights and and the airlines as far as i know just assign a certain bank of numbers to each regional partner right like an airline and this goes on more in the u.s than elsewhere just because you have these these giant regional operations but you know every four digit number starting with a five will be the republic flights and four will be the sky west flights or whatever am i right about all that or i think you're right and, and you know the proliferation of code shares has added a lot more four digits to oh that's true too the code shares tend to be yeah you'll see you'll see flight it'll be some right flight one two three by delta or whatever but it's also flight four one two three for yeah, for Air France or something. Right. That's true. Yeah. You know, Seth, um, earlier in my career, I worked for Taka Airlines, which is now part of Avianca. They merged as one of the many airline mergers over the last decade or so. And um, Taka's flight number strategy for flights to the US, I thought was interesting. Their numbers were all three digit numbers, but the the whether they were 100, 200, 300, 400 were the, were the number of the city in the U.S. in the order they entered them. So the New Orleans flights were all 100 number flights because that was the first city Taka served in the U.S. And then fours were were 
Washington, D.C., because that was the fourth city. And oh, okay, so they skipped all the way. So there were just like a few 100s. Yeah. And then, it just went and then to all the 200s were the next city and 300s were the next city. And and I remember asking them, what if you serve more than nine cities in the U.S.? What are you going to do? And they said, we'll figure that out when we get there. <laughs> <laughs> but, but, in other, but there is no regulatory, right? right? Like every airline can do what it wants, in other words, yeah, right? In I terms of the numbers, right. there's, no, there's no specific, okay, it's just the way they, they all organize it and, and and I think how I described it is how it tends to be, but but there's no specific reason why why it has to be that way. Well, a listener who's asking to remain anonymous, but who we checked out, they're credible, right? I was listening to last week's discussion around code shares and alliances and had something to share in addition to that conversation. You might remember there was a question about code shares and uh, do, do airlines just block off a certain number of seats? And I said, well, that used to happen more. You agreed with me. Now it's just sort of kind of a fluid number in terms of if I can sell seats on your flight, it just kind of moves around based on where the where the demand is, right? And basically if, if my customers are offering more than your customers for the seat, then I then you know then I I sell the seat essentially. This person says I was the head of revenue management for Asia at Qantas for five years. And uh Qantas was probably one of the few carriers left that had a lot of block code shares. So a lot of the kind the old kind. Uh, for Qantas they were mostly to Pacific Islands, a few to Asia. They were relatively small blocks, 20 or 25 seats on average. The Qantas brand was so strong, however, uh, that we were able to revenue manage the seats a lot better than the operating carrier. So with a fixed seat cost, in other words, they had pre-agreed what they were going to pay for the seats, we could turn a good little profit. For the customer, the benefits of Qantas frequent flyer and the support from Qantas if something went wrong at the airport was worth the extra cost. That's interesting because I've seen that in the past at times when I've gone to book a flight where you could get the seat cheaper on an operating carrier. And it could be for for what it doesn't it doesn't have to be because it's a, it's a seat block. Uh, but and you can make your own decision about whether the benefits of getting whatever it is by booking a certain carrier from the loyalty program and the rest of it are worth paying something extra. And a lot of people might pay a couple bucks more at least, or if not more than that, uh, they're just doing the math. But uh, this is somebody confirming that in fact they kind of made a business of that of of, of selling these seats transparently for more than you could get them buying them from the uh, from the other airline. That's real interesting. I think that that's great that that listener wrote, that this listener wrote that in. And I'm sure that listener is right, of course. And I think he or she is also right in that it's because the Qantas brand was so strong in that part of the world, especially, and their revenue management systems were, you know, relatively advanced and things like that, that they could manage it. Some airlines probably buy block or have historically at least have bought blocks they just couldn't well manage. But it's clear that Qantas got quite good at that. I think that's real interesting. Yeah, fascinating. Well, do you have a question for us or a comment like that? You can call us 305-379-7429 and record a question. We'll play it on the air. You can email us questions at airlinesconfidential.com or you can jump on the airlinesconfidential.com website. Finer Wine is next, but first we want to thank Seabury Capital. Seabury Capital is a specialty finance and investment banking firm boasting a 25-year track record of advising key clients in aviation, aerospace and defense, maritime, financial services and technologies. Their award-winning and widely respected team has superior industry knowledge along with state-of-the-art analysis, technology, and solutions, as well as an unmatched depth of relationships with decision-makers in industry, finance, and government. 
Explore their global reach and scale at seaburycapital.com. That's seaburycapital, S-E-A-B-U-R-Y, capital.com. Well, beginning our initial descent on today's show, it's time for Fine or Wine. We listen to an actual customer complaint, and then we talk about whether a complaint is fine or if they're just whining. Ben, you have a complaint. Well, I have Sebastian's complaint, Sebastian of San Antonio, that is, complaining about Aeromexico. Sebastian writes, I had a scheduled flight for 9-7-2020 from San Antonio International Airport to Mexico City, a flight Aeromexico flies, to visit my mother who has recently been experiencing respiratory and other health issues. And because of the current pandemic, it had been more than 10 months since I had an opportunity to see her. On my way to the airport that day from more than two hours away, the right rear tire air pressure kept dropping, which forced my driver and I to have to stop at a gas station three times to refill it with air, causing me to arrive at 12.32 p.m. for my 1.30 p.m. flight 58 minutes before. I ran to the Aeromexico counter, passport in hand, only a small carry-on bag with the hopes they would override their usual policy of closing the flight one hour before departure and let me on the plane. The lady at the counter quickly turned me down, saying that I had interrupted her and was being rude and would not even consider helping me or calling for anyone to make the smallest attempt at helping me. When the supervisor finally came, a man named Orlando, in San Antonio, also dismissed me very quickly, saying the system has already been closed and there was no way for him to help me. I broke down crying and asked him when the next flight was and if he could help put me on it. He again dismissed me without eye contact and told me to call their 1-800 number. Never in a lifetime of traveling with Aeromexico continuously had I experienced such an inhumane treatment from the Aeromexico staff. When I finally got through to an airport agent, she told me that because I had been late, that I would need to rebook another flight. In my opinion, and especially because of the pandemic we're experiencing, this is the time when an airline that should be most sensitive and protect their customers from excessive fees and irrational charges. It's a lot of detail. I, I, I don't. Uh, can we ask them for what, like, what their tire pressure was specifically? <laughs> yeah. No, I mean, obviously, is it? it, it yeah, it's, it's terrible. You, I mean, I've missed flights and. You always feel for somebody, especially somebody in this situation. What is it? Fine or wine, Ben? Well, Seth, like so many of these things, there's the decision and the way the decision is communicated, right? <laughs> and the decision here, I think, makes this a sad story, but really kind of a big wine. He got there late. And when you get yeah. there late and flights close, it's it shouldn't be surprising that something went wrong. You know, if in fact the air pressure was going, did he try calling Aeromexico and saying, hey, I'm on this flight, I'm on the way there, I've had to stop and refill my tire, uh, I'm coming. Maybe at that point he could have talked to someone and they said, hey, make sure to get here by this time or something like that. On the other hand, he spent a lot of time talking about using words like rude and dis and things like that. And and without eye contact and things like that. And in that sense, Aeromexico probably could have been, been done a better job telling the guy why they weren't going to put him on the plane. I feel bad for him that they treated him poorly. No one needs to be treated poorly. But I think the fundamental decision they made makes this kind of a whine. But they could have treated him nicer, I think. Yeah. And, and a Mexican airline serving the U.S. international flight, it, it may be that they just couldn't, that those people just didn't have the flexibility 
to uh, allow him to check in less than an hour before the flight. This, by the way, is a good reason to check in online and and uh, using the app. It sounds like, I mean, uh, at least as, as far as he's saying, like he was first trying to check in then because if, if all he had was handbags, and again, who knows if he had tried checking you know, once in a while, you can't do it and so forth. But, uh, you know, then you can just go through and as long as you can get to the gate in time, you'll uh, you'll you'll be fine. Um, also curious whether it sounds like they just said sorry and, and many airlines will at least try to accommodate you onto the next flight where there's availability. Right. And, and it, it doesn't sound like they did that here. But I, I, I think we are perhaps missing some other data points here as we often do but yeah unfortunately you know there's one other thing about this that this is going to sound really nasty for me to say actually though but if he really if if he was really two hours from san antonio he says it's a two-hour drive to the airport then why is he sebastian from san antonio no 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 i wasn't gonna say that if he's really two hours away then like how long did the stops take it sounds like he was cutting this fairly close anyway. Like on an international flight, even I would think that a, you know San Antonio is a big city and there's lots of domestic flights, but internationally it's not that big, right? Yeah. I would think in, like, compared to a Houston, for example, or Dallas, right. Right? right? And so I would think that you know you'd still want to get there, plan to get there though, sort of at least an hour and a half or maybe even two hours early. For an international flight where they, you may have an issue with your passport or not, their systems may be down or not, right? It's just, it just seems like there was that he was sort of running a little late anyway. And I know that sounds really mean, but uh, I don't know. What yeah. do you think? Am I being too hard on? Yeah, it? as somebody who has driven two hours to the airport in San Antonio for real, <laughs> and blew a master cylinder, the brakes. On a 1986 uh, Nissan 200SX, which had like 200,000 miles on it, uh, back in 1998. It lives in Laredo, Texas. All true story. <laughs> now, now I'm conflating. I, I, use, I did drive to the airport all the time. This time that that happened, I was actually just driving to San Antonio to go to San Antonio. But anyway, uh, I did fly from San Antonio one time to Mexico City. Uh, it was American Airlines. They had a net saver fare. Remember those? Yeah. Way back, I used to, this weekend, you know, cheap, go down and, and, uh, Drove up there and, and flew down to uh, Mexico City for for the uh, for the weekend on American, and it was a um, yeah nice weekend. Anyway, just dude, there's no point to that story. <laughs> just, just, just I'm, I'm, I'm relating. I'm trying to relate to driving two hours to San Antonio because I've actually done it many times living down there in in uh, in Laredo. Well, on final approach back again, it was 97 to 99 is is uh, is when I lived there. Uh, and then got tired of driving the two hours and would, and would later on pay the difference to fly from Laredo and connect in in, uh, in Houston on Continental or, or Dallas on, on American. Well, on final approach now, that uh, talk, I, I was accusing Sebastian of giving too many details, right? And then, then what was that story? <laughs> all that does it for Airlines Confidential this week. Please fasten your seatbelts and ensure your seatbacks and tray tables are in their upright and locked positions. And remember, we'd love to hear your questions at 305-379-7429. Or you can email us, questions at airlinesconfidential.com or jump on the airlinesconfidential.com website. From the Airlines Confidential Studios, I'm Seth Kaplan. And I'm Ben Baldanza. Talk to you soon. This podcast is produced by Mass Media. Info at massmedia.net.